Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 3, Episode 21. Um, And it's the Halloween episode, which means we're going to be doing something a little bit different this week. It's actually come as a a sort of mistake. Well, not really a mistake, but I just sort of stumbled across the idea, really. I was asked to do a collaboration episode with a podcast called The Cult of Domesticity. And of course, I was was up for it. So I, I did like a kind of little mini episode for them which they're doing with other podcasters and then they're going to put it together for their Halloween episode um which is a really cool idea so I did this little mini episode and I realized actually I've got a lot of stories that I've found over the last sort of year of making dark histories they're not enough for a full story they don't they don't tend to have much in the way of sort of solid sources um and sometimes the stories just kind of meander off but I really enjoyed them and I've got a ton of these kind of stories to make that I could make like sort of miniature episodes out of. So I thought, hey, I'm going to do it for Halloween. So today we've actually got three stories. They're basically like minified Dark Histories episodes and I've got three of them for you. We've got the mystery of the Sarah Duckett ghost. We've got the charred murder house haunting and we've got the phantom barber of Pascagoula. So yeah, I thought that would be quite fun. Before we jump into it, of course, I want to say thank you to all the patrons, everyone who supports the show, everyone who shares the show. Um, But yeah, thanks very much to all the new patrons who are Scott, Pete, Deanna, John, C. Doan. I think that's probably what it's meant to be. I hope. And Susie. So yeah, thank you very much. Um, It's really appreciated. And thank you, of course, everyone who supports the show in every way you support. So if it's sharing the show around on social media, reviewing, all of that stuff. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Let's crack on. First up, we've got The Mystery of the Sarah Duckett Ghost. The story of the Church Stratton Ghost Mystery begins in September of 1881, when a farmer named Bill Roberts made reports of seeing a ghost as he made the journey between two local villages in the parish of Church Stratton nestled amongst the Shropshire Hills on the border of England and Wales. The original story popped up throughout the myriad of local newspapers during the first week of September. Whilst the content of the small article was replicated over and over, it appeared under several headlines, such as The Shropshire Mystery and A Mysterious Story. About five years since, a woman named Duckett, aged about 39, arrived at Church Stretton Station with a quantity of luggage, which it is said she deposited in the cloakroom and started towards her home at Soudley. She crossed the railway bridge and was seen ascending Hasler Bank, but since then, no one in the neighbourhood has ever seen her. It appears that she never arrived at her friend's house, 
and although every effort was made at the time to unravel the mystery of her disappearance, no successful solution could be arrived at. The circumstance, in fact, has almost been forgotten, until a few days ago, a young man, a neighbour of the deceased, positively asserted that he saw someone exactly like the deceased walking up the bank when she suddenly disappeared. On arriving at the top of the bank, he saw what he thought was the apparition again, standing by the gate. He was so alarmed that he ran away and did not stop until he reached Hope Boulder. Two other persons also alleged that they saw the figure. The subject has caused such consternation that one of the inhabitants of the neighbourhood is said to have dreamed that the woman's body lies at the bottom of a disused boring hole which is partly filled with water and which is within a few yards of the site of the old toll bar at the top of the hill. There is, therefore, great alarm felt in the district and there is some talk of having the hole cleared out, with many openly expressing an opinion that as the young woman had a sum of money in her possession, she may have been murdered and her body concealed by her murderer in the well. If her body is discovered there, it is not likely that she would have strayed off the main road and so have fallen into the borehole as she knew the neighbourhood intimately and, on the other hand, as she was a well-conducted and orderly person, there is no satisfactory explanation of her sudden disappearance in such a mysterious manner. As strange as the story was, it did at least have its roots in reality. Sarah Duckett had existed and she had since disappeared from the local area. Born in 1830 in Soudley near Church Stretton, Sarah Duckett was the third daughter of George and Anne Stretton. Her father worked as a stonemason who sadly suffered a fatal accident in December of 1838 when he fell from a chimney aged just 46 years old. After her father's death, Sarah Duckett's mother sold their house in order to fund the raising of the three children as best she could. Herself and her three daughters worked small knitting and sewing jobs to get by, and by and large, they managed to fashion a comfortable living situation, even managing to rebuy a property in the local area. When Sarah and her sisters grew to young adults, Elizabeth, the eldest sister, married a tailor from the neighbouring village and had two children, while Sarah and Anna, the middle sister, continued to live with their mother. In 1871, Sarah's mother died through a long-suffering illness, and the family home was sold to Elizabeth and her husband for £210, with the money divided between the three sisters. Sarah received her share of £70, of which she placed 30 into the local savings bank and gave £25 to the parish church. Whilst at the church, speaking with the reverend, she announced her intention to travel abroad to Australia and within a week, she had left the village bound for Liverpool. It was whilst in Liverpool that things started taking a turn for the more bizarre. After just one week of her being there, the Reverend of the Church Stretton Parish Church received a letter from Sarah addressed from Liverpool asking for the church to return the £25 that she had given just a week prior. Knowing that Sarah was unable to write, the Reverend sent a reply stating that if she were to collect it in person, he would be happy to hand it over. Sure enough, three days later, Sarah showed up at the church, took the money and told the Reverend that she would write in the future once she had settled down, though he never heard from her again. After talking to some of Sarah's relatives, they decided to venture down to Liverpool to check and see if things were okay. But upon arriving at the address given by the Reverend, they were given short shrift by Sarah, who told them simply 
that she didn't need their help and that they should leave. After this, it appears that, for a time at least, Sarah did indeed travel to Australia, as records of her journey aboard a steamer departing from Liverpool still exist. Within 18 months, however, it appears that she returned to Church Stretton, apparently looking somewhat the worse for wear and carrying two small boxes of luggage, one of which was broken and apparently contained nothing of any value. This was all confirmed by the Martley Workhouse, where she was received in July of 1874 after being found destitute. For a time, she lived in the local area, before up and disappearing from records sometime in late 1874. So it seems that Bill Roberts' story was not quite as far-fetched as it first seemed. This might also explain why it caused such a stir in the local area, arousing rumours and stirring up the local press, who pounced on the interest, reprinting and syndicating the original piece over and over. Eventually, the Shields Daily Gazette, one of the largest dailies in the north of England, picked up and printed the story on Friday the 9th of September. Midway between Church Stretton and the village of Hope Boldlet is a deep carnivorous hole, excavated years ago by some enthusiastic persons seeking for copper. It takes its name from this and is called Copper Hole. A few nights ago, a small farmer living at Hope Boulder, who had been to Stretton to pay his rent, was passing this hole when he saw, sitting on the fencing surrounding the hole, the figure of a woman who had disappeared some five years since. He called to the woman, but she softly glided back from him and disappeared down the copper hole. The poor man was so horrified that he ran all the way to Hope Boulder, where he arrived in a piteous condition and told his tale. From this time, the road has been almost deserted and the villagers only come and go between their homes and the market town of Church Stretton in clusters. No one would venture past the place at night on any consideration. The disappearance of the young woman was very mysterious. She was a single woman and having saved a little money, intended to emigrate to Australia. Her boxes were brought to Church Stretton station overnight and she had came to the station and made inquiries about the trains. She left the station, presumably to go to her home at Soudley, and was never afterwards heard of. She disappeared, and all trace was lost of her, as if she had sunk underground. It is rumoured that the authorities are about to have the copper hole examined, and the debris cleared from the bottom. Popular opinion has it that the young woman Duckett was murdered and thrown down the hole. The excavation of the copper hole was no small undertaking. It required money and manpower, and no small amount of either. The money to fund the project was put up via a local subscription, with local businesses and those more well-off chipping in to aid the job, whilst the manpower was supplied by local volunteers who worked to clear the whole of debris for several weeks. The hole was around 36 feet or 10 metres deep, and the work was slow going, owing to flooding from rainfall, which hampered the task. Eventually, it was decided to cover the hole with a gazebo, and the work continued. Throughout the excavation, an endless crowd of onlookers churned by the hole, and local press hovered on the edge, awaiting any news of evidence of human remains being found. One local paper interviewed Roberts again about his sighting, which he insisted had been completely real. Do you think I only fancied I saw her? While she brushed by me, and I felt her dress against my leg. I was just going to speak to her when she vanished clean away. Did I know her? I should think I did. 
knew her as well as I knew anyone. As the interest in the excavation grew by the day, with the crowds surrounding the copper hole allegedly numbering into the hundreds, so too did the press coverage, and it wasn't long before the Illustrated Police News jumped on board, honouring it with one of their large centrepiece sketches. The ghost of Sarah Duckett had made national headlines, and as such, the interest in the story snowballed. The Illustrated Police News reported the road that passed in front of the copper hole as resembling a country fair, with men and women arriving daily by carriages. The paper's report also elaborated on a seemingly throwaway detail. It appears that, for some reason, Miss Duckett, when out of situation, did not make her home with her relatives, but stayed always at the Hazel or Tollbar. It is reported that after her mysterious disappearance, the cellar at the Tollbar was filled up. Soon after the publication, the men neared the bottom of the copper hole, though no human remains had been uncovered. Within days, however, the saga took a strange twist when a letter was received by one of the more affluent tradesmen of the area who had sponsored the excavation of the copper hole. The letter was postmarked London and read, You will fail to find the body of Sarah Duckett in the copper hole. Look in the cellar of the toll bar. Examine the part nearest the road in the left-hand corner. The strange letter was signed off simply, One Who Knows. How they knew was never explained, but one thing was certain. The men had reached the bottom of the copper hole, and the only thing that they had managed to uncover was a single old boot, confidently deemed to have not belonged to Sarah Duckett. Talk quickly turned instead to the cellar of the toll bar. Just as excavations of the cellar were hitting full swing, a second further letter was received in the village this time purportedly written by Sarah Duckett herself, and stated that she was alive and well, married and living in Worcester. The letter appeared to cause a division in the villages nearby the Copper Hole, with many assuming it a hoax, whilst others, including much of the press, proclaiming it as mystery solved. There was, however, to be one last twist in the tale of the ghost of Sarah Duckett. Within a week of the publication of the letter claiming to be from Sarah Duckett, the Reverend published his own communication that he'd been having with a local surgeon who had been investigating the matter. Finally, it turned out that Sarah Duckett could not have possibly written the second letter because she was well and truly officially recorded as deceased. But not as many assumed in the copper hole, nor in the cellar of the toll bar. Sarah Duckett had died in 1976 two years after entering the Martley Workhouse in an infirmary in Worcester, aged 45. The only description of her was that of a domestic servant. The press now roundly stamped the whole affair as done and dusted, mystery solved, but the workmen who had given much of their time over the preceding month to excavate the copper hole and the cellar of the toll bar still maintained their belief otherwise. Whilst her body may not have been in the copper hole nor in the corner of the toll bar, she had nevertheless died years previous. If we are to discount the local conspiracy theories and assume that Sarah Duckett died in the Worcester Infirmary, it doesn't necessarily discount the apparition that Robert saw on that first night. Sarah Duckett was still deceased, which means Roberts can only have seen either a woman that looks remarkably like Sarah or her wandering spirit. Tantalizingly, sightings of Sarah Duckett's ghost returned almost one year later to the day. A young man a few nights back 
who had laughed the loudest and ridiculed the most when the ghost story was at its height, declaring that if he had seen something even resembling his satanic majesty, much less the ghost of an inoffensive Sarah Duckett, he should have something to say to it, was returning from Church Stratton, when, as he relates, he perceived a woman following him at a little distance. Thinking he should have company, he stayed for her to come up to him, but although she appeared to continue walking, she did not seem to gain ground. Neither could he hear the footsteps, but only the rustling of her dress. After stopping a number of times for this singular follower to overtake him, and always with the same unsuccessful result, his bravery deserted him and he walked rapidly on towards Hope Boulder. Coming to a part of the road called the Pikes, he states that he summoned the courage to stand again, determined this time to have some conversation with the strange woman. She then glided noiselessly towards him, and when within a few yards, stood and slowly removed her cotton bonnet from her head. Holding it towards him, he states that he saw the bonnet plainly and the strings hanging from it. The woman then passed through the hedge and vanished from sight. The young man reached home in a pitiable condition from fright. The scare appears positively greater than ever. The appearance of this alarming visitor was not confined to the young man from Hope Boulder, for an old man going along the lane leading to his cottage one night found his passage barred by the ghost and fainted outright. A youth on horseback was so scared by its presence that, putting spurs to the animal, he never drew rein until he reached the village of Letchwood, and I hear a lady received a more serious injury to her nervous system through imagining that she saw the ghost through her parlour window. It is surprising how many people around Church Stratton solemnly shake their heads and observe that Sarah Duckett's death hasn't been clearly proved yet after all. If it has not, it certainly seems a pity that someone cannot come forward to clearly prove it to the satisfaction of even the most superstitious neighbour. So the Sarah Duckett ghost, I think that's a really cool story. I, I really love the level that they just went to. <laughs> so they have like one man gives a word of mouth story about seeing a ghost and they spend a month digging digging up a hole. <laughs> it's it's pretty extreme, you know. Um so I, I really I really enjoy that. Just the the level of conviction to the truth of this story. Uh but yeah, I, I thought it was a great story. Um, I thought it was really interesting. I think it's quite strange how the papers just drop it and just say, oh, mystery solved, despite the fact that I don't think it really is. Or at least if you're kind of buying into the original concept that, that he saw a ghost, you know, she was still dead. It was all right. You know, why, why, why stop it? Anyway, next up, we've got the murder cottage of Chard or the haunted murder cottage of Chard. I'm not sure what I called it. I'm not sure what I called any of these. So it's something like that. It makes sense. Let's go. The story of the haunted cottage of Chard begins, like many Victorian ghost stories, with a somewhat unorthodox string of events leading to a suspicious death and a courtroom full of terrible defences. 
Samuel Churchill was born in 1796 in Knowles St Giles, Somerset in southwest England. The area was rural with a string of small villages surrounded by farms and Samuel, like so many, worked the land as a farm labourer for his whole life. He married and had a daughter named June, but in 1854 his wife died, leaving him to raise their daughter alone. Quickly the household chores stacked up against him and so he hired a housekeeper to take care of the day-to-day running of the house, a young maid named Catherine Walden. Before long, Catherine found herself pregnant and Samuel the father. The son was born and named Samuel Jr. As the couple were not married, the birth was seen as illegitimate and the source of much gossip in the local villages. Eventually, after years of perseverance, Samuel and Catherine married in 1871 and the pair lived in a small cottage in charge with their son, Samuel Jr. and Catherine's elderly mother, who suffered from both partial deafness and partial blindness. The marriage was not what one might call plain sailing, and the newlyweds were so often seen fighting that many in the village quickly dropped their early concerns as their increasingly violent outbursts became a common occurrence. Catherine, who had gained a reputation locally as a woman with a furious temper, was many years Samuel's junior and was working as both washwoman and farm labourer. She was stocky and relatively well-built. Although Samuel himself maintained his position as a labourer, he was increasingly frail in his old age and he was frequently beaten by both Catherine and their son Samuel Jr. following their fiery arguments. A major source of the aggravation between the couple was the contents of Samuel's will. His daughter, June, did not trust Catherine and believed that she was trying to talk Samuel into writing herself out of the will and forcing him to leave everything to his and Catherine's son, Samuel Jr. Catherine, for her part, also did not trust June and believed the opposite, that she was trying to talk her father into writing Samuel Jr. out of the will entirely. June and her husband also naturally took issue with the beatings dished out upon her father by her mother-in-law and when their fights got out of hand and Samuel fled the house, it was always to stay with June and George until, inevitably, Catherine would talk him into returning home. On the morning of the 4th of March, 1879, Samuel and Catherine finished up breakfast and Samuel retreated to sit next to the fire and smoke his pipe. The next time he was seen was after George had been notified of an accident at his father-in-law's house and was asked to report there immediately. When he stepped into the living room, he found the burnt and charred body of Samuel lying headfirst in the fireplace. Immediately suspicious of Catherine, George quickly rounded on her, demanding to know what had happened, but she simply replied that she did not know. According to Catherine, she had left Samuel by the fire smoking his pipe when she had gone out that morning to purchase some bread and bacon and found him lying in the fireplace when she returned. She had removed his trousers, which were his best, in order to stop them from being burnt, and then she had thrown water on the burning body. It was unfortunately, however, too late. Samuel was already dead. Police Sergeant Watley, the officer who had responded to the scene after Catherine had called in the discovery, then went and notified the doctor in order to get an examination of the body, ordering neither George nor Catherine to touch the body. Upon his return, and whilst waiting for the doctor, he found a burnt clay pipe in the ashes of the fire that appeared to have bloodstains upon it, 
and he asked Catherine to accompany him upstairs to a bedroom to take off her cloak and apron to examine her clothes for bloodstains. He quickly discovered spots of blood on the lower hem of her dress, though Catherine explained that they had gotten there when she had initially discovered the body of Samuel and had attempted to move him off the burning fire. Things got much more ropey for Catherine after the arrival of the doctor, who thoroughly examined Samuel's body and soon discovered that, despite the badly charred remains, there were clear marks that matched the clay pipe upon his hands, head and face. The police had seen enough. They arrested Catherine and took her into custody. As she left the house, she yelled out to Samuel Jr., who was returning just as she was being removed from the property. Don't cry, Samuel. Go and take care of the house. See to the wheel. Mind they don't cheat you out of the money. I never hurt the old rope. The inquest, held at George Hotel, was swift. The witness accounts against Catherine were damning indeed. Those gathered in the hotel in Chard heard of how she had routinely beaten her husband, of her violent outbursts and of her aggressive temper. Throughout the inquest, Catherine was reported on as appearing emotionless and only moved to mutter to herself, nasty stinking lies, as witnesses roundly spoke out against her case. Probably most damning was the account of Eliza Watley, a young housemaid from Chard who, upon passing by the house on the morning of the murder, reported of seeing a woman beating an old man through the window and heard Samuel's cries of murder. After two days of hearing witness statements, the jury stepped out on Friday evening, returning shortly to unanimously hand out a verdict of willful murder, committing Catherine to trial for the murder of her husband. Her trial was equally swift, and the next report in the press was of her execution, though the account was spared much of the usual grotesque fervour that many accounts of Victorian executions were given. The scaffold was erected in an outhouse in the prison yard, where the prison van is kept. Marwood was the executioner. The high sheriff, the governor of the jail, the chaplain, the surgeon and the wardens were the only persons present. Immediately on the drop falling, a black flag was hoisted over the entrance to the prison. An inquest was subsequently held on the body and a notice was affixed to the walls of the prison stating that the sentence of the law had been duly carried out. So after all this grim tale of domestic violence, where is the ghost story? In December of 1879, long after the trial and execution of Catherine Churchill had passed from the pages of the press and her name long forgotten, a small snippet appeared in the Illustrated Police News, with the headline simply, A Haunted House. In March last, an old man named Churchill was murdered in a cottage near Chard. For some time after the execution, the building remained uninhabited, but at length, it was let to a labourer and his family, but the incomers soon found that they could obtain no rest. They state that the murderess, Kitty had been frequently seen to glide about the premises in ghostly attire and that old Churchill had been distinctly observed to look in at the window with hideous countenance. This, added to the appearance of blood on the floor of the room in which the tragedy was enacted, supernatural movements amongst the furniture and other articles and unearthly noises in the immediate vicinity of the cottage so unsettled the occupants that they at last abandoned the dwelling which is now regarded as haunted. Sadly, the tale begins and ends there, as tracing the original source to the local Somerset papers only leads to a slightly reworded but similarly short article on the hauntings. 
They do, however, stand out from the usual Victorian fare of haunting stories, as short as it is, with blood seeping from the floors and appearances of both murdered and murderess, leaving one to wonder as to the fate of the small cottage after the evacuation of the previous residence. Might it still stand today, and might the grim fate of Samuel Churchill still play out on ghostly repeat? That was a quite strange one, I felt. It was, but there was elements to it that I just liked and I wanted to include it. But it was a bit of a strange one. The fact that it sort of peters out, I feel, is quite, it might be disappointing, but I think it's quite a good example of Victorian newspaper reporting where they just, they get really into a story and they'll report about it for weeks and then it will just peter out into nothing almost instantly. And it, it can be super frustrating when you feel like you found an episode, you're researching it, you're researching it, and then it just disappears. But yeah, that, that's Victorian reporting, I guess. So before we get up to the next episode, I we're not going to be running adverts this week. Instead, I'm going to be sticking a promo in for another podcast, which I think you might really enjoy if you like Dark Histories. I think there's a lot of crossover. It's, it is a fiction podcast, but I think if you like things like The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits, like if you remember any of those shows, um, you know, a- any of those kind of like quite um, almost kind of pulpy B-movie sci-fi out there kind of stuff, I think you'll you really enjoy it. So yeah, I, they, they, they contacted me and asked about doing a promo swap and, and, and I, I listened to their podcast and was just like absolutely on board with it so check it out these guys are called twilight histories and you you can subscribe to them everywhere but they do have a website twilighthistories.com anyway i'll let them talk for themselves here's their promo the black scourge ravaged europe and the great cities were destroyed survivors flooded north where viking longboats ferried them to the new world as the trail of refugees grew So too did the ships, and soon, massive, multi-decked Viking galleys trolled the wine-dark seas, building medieval cities along every coast. I'm Jordan Harbour. Come join me at the Twilight Histories podcast, where you will experience exotic worlds like this one, worlds that never existed in our timeline. An Aztec empire built by Spanish steel, a Carthaginian colony on Mars, and Egypt that never fell. Listen with the lights off and allow the images to take you away. Listen to the Twilight Histories podcast. So, you know, feel free, give it a go if you fancy. Next up, we've got the last story anyway. We've got the Phantom Barber of Pascagoula. Prior to the Second World War, Mississippi was the poorest state in the entire US. Heavily suffering from the toll of the Great Depression, it was a land whose floundering economy focused solely on agriculture. As the bells of war sounded, however, it found itself pulled up from poverty by the Great War Machine. Pascagoula, a small coastal city with a population of around 4,000, saw its citizenship swell more than threefold as the state's population shifted to urban areas 
to work in the newly created industrial manufacturing positions. Pascagoula was the home of the standout workforce in this regard, with the founding of Ingalls, the largest shipbuilding company in the US. As the company took on more contracts from the US Navy, the demand for labour continued to grow until, by 1942, its workforce peaked at over 12,000, whilst the population of Pascagoula rose in step to over 14,000. It was amongst this smashing together of people, newly confined by the constrictions of urban life, that saw a crime spree break out in the hot summer months of 1942. One person sought to take advantage of this wave of criminality to carry out a very different series of break-ins, a man who would only ever be known as the Phantom Barber. As darkness fell over the Our Lady of Victory's convent during the first week of a warm 1942 June in the city of Pascagoula, its searing white spire struck out from the red brick building piercing the night sky. Aside from the luminance from the pointed roof of the convent, the town found itself plunged into an almost complete darkness, brought about by the recent enforced blackouts, a precaution that had seen many cities along the Gulf Coast follow suit, a symbol of the serious efforts taken to aid the war effort. The din of the industrial shipbuilding sector continued its never-ending drone as families tucked themselves into their beds for the night and men on the night shift took to their factory work to satiate the US Navy in their thirst for wartime supremacy. Mary Evelyn Briggs, aged 11, and her close friend and roommate, 12-year-old Edna Marie Hadel, were already fast asleep in the convent's dormitories when the sound of tearing abruptly seared throughout the quiet room. The girls barely stirred as a figure appeared at the window, tore at mosquito netting and climbed into the room. He bent over one of the sleeping girls and set to work, blades flashing in the moonlight, sending faint shadows across the walls. Mary Evelyn, sensing something standing over her, woke and with bleary eyes saw a man bend close to her and shush her quietly. It was an unsuccessful attempt to not shock the young girl and she let out a yell that rang through the concrete walls of the convent. The man turned to the window and jumped out of sight. It wasn't until she had time to calm down that her roommate, Edna Marie, noticed that her hair on the left side of her head had been butchered, shorn roughly, leaving six inches of blonde hair hanging loosely next to her ear. I saw the figure of a kind of short, fat man bending over me with something shiny in his hand, and he was fooling with my hair. When he saw me open my eyes, he said, shh, and I yelled. He jumped out of the window. The man had not hurt either young girl, nor had he stolen anything from the convent before he was caught. He had simply sheared off a large patch of Mary Evelyn's hair. It was a bizarre story, and one that the press were quick to jump on, instantly calling the perpetrator the Phantom Barber. Newspapers throughout the US ran with the story, sandwiched between pieces on British raids on Nazi-occupied France and news from the Russian front. Stories of the Phantom Barber came with a slight tongue-in-cheek twang. Locally, people were taking it far more seriously. The local police, headed up by police chief Azel, issued a reward for information that led to a capture totaling $400, made up of $100 donations from the Ingram Shipbuilding Company, the police, a local bank and a second local manufacturer. The investigation, however, soon hit a wall. 
Bloodhounds were released around the convent, focusing on a track that led from the girl's window, and though the dogs initially followed it, they ran out of steam when it entered a forested area, with police suggesting that perhaps the phantom had stashed a bicycle in the forest and escaped after dashing there to collect it. On June the 11th, just a handful of nights later, once again the town found itself in near darkness as the blackout was carried out. One by one, the cities along the Gulf Coast faded into the murky shoreline and the landscape fell into a quiet, indistinct shapelessness. The Phantom Barber, then a minor celebrity, was still in the backs of most people's minds that night as they climbed into bed in the darkness. In truth, people would have perhaps benefited from a touch more vigilance. The scissor-wielding intruder had not been the only individual that had twisted the blackout into his favour, and recently, the city police had privately noted an increasing wave of robberies and break-ins as those less scrupulous sought to use the dark streets to their advantage. As eight-year-old Carol Peaty slept away in her bed, she didn't even stir as the phantom struck for a second time, tearing a slit in her window screen to climb through. He silently cut the little girl's hair and then left as he came. When she awoke the next morning, the first she became aware of the crime was when her parents saw her skewed locks, messily clipped away. Once more, the phantom barber had entered the house through the window under the cover of darkness, stripped the girl's hair and disappeared into the night. He had not stolen anything from the girl's room, nor injured the girl in any other way, aside from relieving her of a handful of her hair. The second attack saw an abrupt change in reporting of the phantom barber. Though he retained his melodramatic name, the press now pointed out the apparent rise in local crime over the past weeks, and people began to protest against the blackouts. The local police responded to the fears of the city by successfully applying for a relaxation on the enforced blackouts, which people noted made it much easier for a criminal to slink away from a scene unnoticed. Police Chief Azell then enlisted the help of six volunteers from the local citizenry and equipped them with both a pistol and the powers to arrest or incapacitate a crime suspect. With the story stretching out from the press far across the county, he also warned, Just about every man in town is armed. I would advise strangers to proceed with caution. Rather strangely, the phantom barber had begun slipping into scapegoat territory amongst the press, with many stories now choosing to attribute not only the shearing of the two girls' hair, but also a string of petty crimes throughout Pascagoula. Parents were warned to remain vigilant and up the security in their homes in order to stamp out the elusive criminal's nighttime spree. The Peaty family was one such family that had elected to sleep together in order to up their level of security. As people dimmed their evening lamps and retired to bed, many families had recently chosen to sleep in the same room together and husbands had, on occasion, stayed home from their jobs on the night shift. This was a move which had not been missed by the press, and the Phantom Barber was quickly becoming an enemy of the war effort in the eyes of many. Eleven days later, on June the 22nd, as the Peaty family holed up together in the master bedroom of their home to sleep, the Phantom Barber made his third appearance. It was midnight when Carol Peaty awoke, feeling violently ill after feeling a smothering sensation on her face. Once again, the phantom had been and gone, leaving a wide gash in the window screening. I didn't even know my hair had been cut until I reached up to my head. It was a lot shorter on one side than the other. 
Owing to the layout of the room, the police formed the opinion that the intruder had not actually had to enter the house on this occasion. Shielded by parked cars on the nearby street, he had leant in through the window and sliced off a section around two inches square of Carol Peaty's hair. Carol herself claimed that she had been chloroformed and it was the effects of the drug that had woken her. Sabotage of the war effort was by now the clear frontrunner for motive in the crimes. Once again, no violence against the victims had been carried out and no property had been stolen. The barber was simply there to spook the neighbourhood by shearing off locks of their hair as they slept. It appeared to be working. An element of hysteria began to spread throughout the city as waves of families protested against the local police for not doing more in the dimly lit streets at night and men began staying home from work more and more frequently in order to protect their families. A Mrs Wally had fired at a man in the street simply because he had stood too near to her window. Police Chief Azell told the press that he reluctantly had come to the conclusion that the barber and the ever-increasing, though not always reported, string of crimes attributed to him was a calculated form of sabotage. Just as quickly as the phantom barber had struck, so too did the police retaliate. And on the 25th of June, three days after the attack on Carol Peaty, police put out reports that the phantom had been captured. Though it would be several weeks before his name would be officially released, the arrested suspect was 57-year-old William Dolan, a local German-educated chemist. When his name and background were released to the press in mid-July, they quickly put two and two together, publishing details of his educational background in Germany and declaring him a Nazi sympathiser with a motive to impair the moral of war workers. Curiously, the attack that had led to his arrest was not the string of midnight haircuts, but an assault with an iron bar on Terrell Heidelberg and his wife, a local couple that had taken place on the 13th of June. Dolan had quarrelled with Heidelberg's father, who operated as the local magistrate. He had been previously arrested on a string of trespassing misdemeanours, and Dolan had requested Magistrate Heidelberg to reduce his bail from $500 to $100, which was refused. In retribution, the police said he had carried out the attack with an iron bar on the man's son and daughter after breaking into their house as they slept. It was a fairly different MO from the previous phantom barbering, a fact that was pointed out in the press. The Heidelbergs were the only victims of the barber who suffered physical harm beyond losing their hair. Though this fact appeared to be promptly ignored by Police Chief Azell, who insisted, we're sure it's the man. Backing up this confidence was a claim that upon searching Dolan's property, the police had come across strands of human hair behind his house which matched the colour of Carol Peaty's. Several members of the community gave damning statements against Dolan, calling him out as a German sympathiser and signing statements as such. On November the 19th, William Dolan was sentenced to 10 years prison for assault and battery and the attempted murder of Heidelberg and his wife. Throughout both his trial and incarceration, he protested against his sentence, claiming he was innocent and even took a lie detector test carried out by a local private investigator in his prison cell, though this was later discounted by the authorities. Dolan was eventually released in 1948, five years early, on grounds of good behaviour after serving just half of his sentence. From the early summer of 1942, the Phantom Barber was never seen nor heard from again. 
Whether or not William Dolan was the Phantom Barber after all seems a question that can be easily up for debate. Although his arrest appeared to coincide with the ceasing of the attacks, had the real barber simply used it as an opportune time to bow out of the field, slipping into the shadows as he had on the night of the attacks. The assault against the Heidelbergs would have been a traumatic shift in MO if it had been the same man, and it would appear that both the stealthy midnight shearing and the assault were both just crimes in what had been, with the blackout, an ideal set of circumstances to facilitate a small crime spree in Pascagoula. Dolan was never officially charged with breaking and entering, nor the cutting of the girl's hair, so it seems the police had simply used Dolan's arrest as a catch-all in the press to sweep up the headline-making stories of the Phantom Barber that had caused such a stir in the city. If this is true, however, then what of the hair found behind the house? Police Chief Azell claimed that it had been sent off to the FBI for analysis, but it was never mentioned again in any press reports. So did it exist at all? Or, if it did exist, was it really found behind Dolan's house? The details of the story begin to feel remarkably convenient. So what did happen to the Phantom Barber? And why had he chosen to stalk into young girls' homes that June to relieve them of their hair? Whatever the reason, it is by now more than likely lost in the obscurity of history, leaving us only to guess at the short, fat man's twisted motives for a crime that remains as unsettling as it is bizarre. That, I think, is probably the most terrifying of the stories. And I find it really fascinating that you take away the ghosts, you take away the real kind of horrifying criminals. And in fact, it's the weird, creepy criminals that don't really do anything that are the scariest, right? <laughs> it always seems to be the way. You have to have this creepy man sticking his hands in through your window, cutting your hair at night. That's much scarier than any of these other stories that we've had on the episode. <laughs> so enjoy that. I thought we'd finish on it. That's the end of the episode for this week. It's a bit different, but it's Halloween, so why not? Next week, we'll be back to normal. I hope you have a great Halloween for starters and I hope you have a great couple of weeks. Stay healthy, have fun. I'll see you all very soon. Thanks very much for listening as always. Sleep tight.